panel on RNZ National. Now, the jury in Lauren Dickinson's triple murder trial retired just before 2pm to begin deliberating their verdicts. They're on their way back to the courtroom to re-watch videos of the alleged murderer and her husband being interviewed by police the day after their children died. Uh, Dickinson pleaded not guilty with her defence, arguing it was a case of, of infanticide and insanity instead. So if we have any news for you on that front, we will let you know straight away. But first up on the programme, and already a huge response to this, as you can well imagine. Today, a snap panel poll. Do you support GST off fruit and vegetables? Yes, no, why or why not? Text me at 2101, results at 4.45. Now, this was then Labour leader Phil Goff on the Kiwi FM breakfast back in September 2010. There's an argument for taking GST off uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. Well, in fact, there's two. One is it uh, reduces the price, and that's uh, a significant component of uh, people's uh, food buy each week. Yeah. And, and secondly, uh, if you looked at you might or might not have looked at the front page of The Economist uh, uh, late last week, but it uh, had a list of the, uh, the, the fattest countries in the world, the most obese. And there is New Zealand. That was back in 2010, and on Sunday, Labour announced that it would take GST off fruit and veg if re-elected, meant to kick in on April the 1st next year, which is the first day of the tax year. And those you might have expected to support it haven't. Uh, the Child Poverty Action Group called it expensive and a sad way to give $4 a week to low-income families. Uh, there was also some changes to working for families, but we have heard a lot already, haven't we, about the taxation aspect. So let's delve a little into the politics of it. With us is Dr. Bryce Edwards, the lecturer in politics at uh, Victoria University. Uh, Dr. Edwards, kia ora. Kia ora, was. So you heard that there, 2010 call and what their policy is back. Uh, we've been here before, Bryce. Uh, we have, and this comes up around the world from time to time. And tax reform is quite big internationally and in New Zealand at the moment. I don't really think there's ever been a time when there's been such heightened awareness of the problems in the tax system and the fact that it's leading to all sorts of no dysfunction, uh, inequalities. And so especially on the left of politics, but I think more broadly as well, there's quite a demand for some of the tax settings to be looked at and re-evaluated. And of course we've had the, uh, the Labour government, especially under Jacinda Ardern rule out wealth taxes and now, sorry, capital gains taxes and now wealth taxes by Chris Hipkins. Uh, Hipkins also announced yesterday that there wouldn't be any changes under Labour to income tax settings. So really all they've got to work with is uh, consumer taxes like GST. And um, that's kind of the only game in town. Uh, Labour's kind of painted themselves into a corner right. and that's really all they've got to move on. It's interesting though, isn't it, because I, why I play that, because you know I can recall years in the media I'm reporting so often about this, and here we go again, you know, here it's happening again, just again, an election year. Is it cynical electioneering, or is it a genuine response? Uh, well, better than nothing. I think it can be all of those things, Wallace. I mean, certainly this policy is being brought about because there is 
hurt out there in society, hurt at the supermarket. People are struggling uh, to pay for prices on especially fruit and veggies, which have gone up 23% over the last three years. And so, you know, people are looking mm. for the parties to, you know, actually give some sort of instant uh, fix to things. And so this is an instant fix in, a, in that sense. Um, whether it's the right one or not, uh, that's what we're having a big debate on. But um, I, I think it's probably a bit cynical in the sense that Labor have uh, not really, well, they've been in power for six years and they've not really been interested in making this change and uh, they haven't advanced the case and suddenly they've pulled it out of a hat out of nowhere. So uh, it does look a bit like it's, yeah, just a bit desperate really. Okay, well, I'll be interested to hear what our um, wonderful panel listeners across the country think of this, and uh, we'll hear that at quarter to five this afternoon, uh, what's uh, their mood. And it's quite a varied response so far, but nonetheless a huge response. Uh, Our panellists will definitely have views on this. Uh, Victoria. Yeah, it is complicated. And as um, Dr Edwards has just laid out, you know, it's it's one of many levers that the government could have pulled and a government who were elected on a wellbeing um, ticket six years ago. It's surprising that they've taken so long to look at the cost of living generally. But I wanted to ask you, Dr Edwards, if you were a political party right now, what policy would you put in place to reduce the cost of living? Wow, that's a really tough one to put me on the spot there, Victoria. Uh, look, uh, I think I do have some sympathy with the idea of reducing uh, GST um, or getting rid of it. So I think you know, Labor's generally heading in the right direction. It's just that they're doing it in a very mild way. I mean, I think there's a case for reducing GST overall, taking it down from 15% back to what it used to be, 12.5%. I think that would have an instant hit um, across all expenditure. But, um, sorry, Victoria, I'm just really saying that off the top of my head. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an intractable problem, and uh, it does need more than just um, policies being pulled out by either me or Chris Hipkins out of the hat. <laughs> All right, uh, Salwin. Yeah, Bryce, good to talk to you on the radio about these kind of things. Um, yeah. My view on, on this is uh, that it needs, in some ways, uh, a couple of things to happen for a policy like GST off food and vegetables, for it to be a success, a couple of things here. And those, in my view, are it needs to have a staunch regulatory arm to stop the supermarket duopolies from price yeah. gouging. That's number one. Um, second... Yeah. It needs to be a signal that Labor agrees that GST on essential grocery foods overall and goods as well has reached a tipping point where the public deserves a bit of a break. And that GST on fruit and vegetables, and this is the important part, is the beginning of a trend back to reasonable and fair consumption tax policies. So in that sense, you know, I think there's a lot of simpatico no matter which way you look at it, and it can be looked at only if this is a signal. And if Labor needs any kind of signals from the electorate that this kind of thing is popular, then it needs to listen to that and it needs to deliver on a broader base than what it's doing. And I've got to say, if the if the public says enough is enough and demands this kind of policies, this kind of policy, then the policy, politics and the politicians around that politics, it does need to change. In my view, Bryce, GST has gone too far for too long. And look, Mm. there are difficulties around the administration of this, so we believe, but those were the same concerns that were put to the Australian politic when it was considering this and it's been able to pull it off. I think that that we're at a time in an election debate where we can look at this as a 
tipping point that is reversing back from, if that makes sense. Hopefully I've explained my views. Bryce, anything in, in that? Oh, look, I, I really agree with all of that, Selwyn. I would particularly emphasise that the problem with the supermarkets and the sequencing here is a bit of a factor because the government has struggled really with reforming what is a duopoly in the supermarket sector. And so if they'd reformed that sector first and then brought in uh, the, the dropping of GST on fruit and veggies, I think it would make a lot more sense. So at the moment, there's a lot of economists and other experts that are saying because we have a duopoly, we don't have a competitive supermarket uh, sector at the moment. If you reduce the GST overnight, it's likely just to end up in greater profits to those supermarket chains who, yeah, don't really have a lot of pressure to pass those those discounts on to the consumer. And just finally, yes. uh, Bryce, what can we anticipate? Uh, how will this be accepted, or how will it change the poll? Is what I'm trying to say. Is it just a case of wait and see? Yeah, there's a case of that. I mean, it's, it, there's some quite amazing uh, support for this in the polls. So we saw the Talbot Jones, no, Talbot Mills polls out on the weekend that showed right. about two-thirds of New Zealanders support this policy. But, I mean, I've just been amazed to see over the last 24 hours how many commentators, myself included, have come out quite critical of this. There doesn't really seem to be a lot of support here. So there's a bit of a disjuncture between the, I don't know, the commentariat and the public on this. And it reminds me a bit of, you know, Brexit, if you like, actually, where, you know, us experts are saying one thing and the public seem to be saying something else. And um, maybe it might even be a bit of a backlash against us saying that it's, it's too hard to take GST off food. It doesn't work. Um, there's a bit more populism there. I That's think. exactly what one texter said, Bryce. I'm going to vote for it because all the experts and journalists uh, don't agree with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that's right. You know, there's a sense in that too that sometimes the cumulative wisdom of the people are right. Interesting. Hey, um, Dr. Edwards, kia ora. Thank you for your time again. Uh, that's uh, Bryce Edwards here on the politics uh, of the GST issue. And don't, don't forget that SNAP uh, panel poll, unscientific as it is, be interesting to get the mood of the panel listeners. Do you support GST off fruit and veg? Yes, no. Why or why not? Text me, 2101. To this, though, very interesting uh, topic, this one, uh, a solar homes policy. That's what the Green Party have announced, a clean energy payment was announced yesterday, and it would see homeowners receive up to six grand in grants and up to thirty thousand dollars in zero interest loans to help with insulation, your heat pumps, household solar. But is solar the best way to go? Is it effective? Is it money well spent? Do you have it? What do you think of it? Thirty percent of Kiwi homes are damp and mouldy, and with us is Ralph Sims, who is professor of sustainable energy at Mass University Centre for Energy Research. Professor Sims, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace, and hi, Sir, Victoria. Nice to have you on. So let me ask you, Ralph: Is solar a way to go? Seriously. Absolutely. I, I, I have got a solar system at home. Uh, if you've got, for people who have got a few thousand dollars, it's much better to put it in, in, into a, a solar system on your roof than to put it in KiwiSaver or whatever for a return on investment. Really? It's a, sort of, it's a 12-year payback period, depending on where you live in the country, and you've got to have a good roof, ideally north-facing, and so you've got a location for it. But 
it's a, a very good investment. I've just driven today, in fact, from Palmerston North to Hamilton in my electric car, and I charged that from my roof. It cost me maybe a dollar fifty to get from Palmerston North to Wellington in the surplus power that I would have sold to the grid, and so I'm winning in that regard as well. Good grief, Victoria! Um, uh, just as good That's or not changed better. Changed my life. What, you changed got... my life, Wallace. Yeah, completely. We <laughs> really? built an eco eco home, solar panels. I I leave for work in the morning and I put the dishwasher and washing machine on and don't even have to think about it. And our energy bills, with the offset of the the minuscule amount that we get selling surplus back into the grid, I might note though, um, are just a fraction of what we used to pay. It's just You're completely revolutionised my life. Yep, it's great. Wow. Stay there, Ralph. Let's bring Salwin in then. You know, one of the things is beginning of this year, I was sitting there in Hawke's Bay, not far from Napier. The cyclone hit. There was nothing. There was darkness. There was no power for about eight days where I was. There was no cell phone coverage or anything. Gave me time to think. I built an oven out of some bricks and made a cup of Billy tea out of it and sat there. The thing that came to me in the silence of those eight days was sitting there and I was thinking, what are the solutions to this situation I'm in here? I do not have solar on top of the roof and it's a windy area where I am and I don't have any wind generation. What are the rocks in the road that stops me from getting that? And it comes down to ignorance of what's available in the market, ignorance of myself, I'm talking about here, the technical abilities and which system to choose and third, the cost. Now, this policy, I think it's a challenge to all of the political parties to start rolling out solutions to those types of predicaments. Also, if there needs a couple of things on this type of policy, I think, where there is some sort of control to make sure that the power companies return that a fair deal to the householders that right. generate surplus. But and, and set, yeah, but a, a fair amount coming back, not just a few cents or a minor percentage. Isn't that the the dichotomy here that I wanted to ask Professor Sims, where the government still owns so much of the generation and the retail in New Zealand, so such a big percentage, that they would prefer that money being returned to the consolidated pool via purchasing electricity that they're generating versus incenting um, everyone to be generating their own solar? Is that, Professor mm. Sims, is that something, yeah. that economic argument, a challenge? Yeah, that is a debate, but I think you'll find that current government are supportive of not as much as the Greens, obviously, because they're pushing very hard. Um, but it, it makes more sense for having distributed energy, energy smart grids in the longer term, as well as the main generators. And so you've got a, a benefit of having both then. And of course, um, for Selwyn, if you if you want to um, be secure, you've got to have a battery as well as the solar panels so that you can get some supply if you do get cut off. Batteries are a bit more expensive, but that's part of the solution as well. And, and the, the um, policy for the Greens is, of course, to allow people who can't afford a few thousand dollars hmm. to be able to install solar PV. But it's not only solar, it's um, energy efficiency and insulation and improving the um, uh, zero carbon footprint of a household as well. So all of that together is good, um, a good news story. 
in terms of the government owning three quarters of the generators, then they do get a return on investment. But they're in, but they're supporting uh, new new technologies, new wind farms, new and and the long term mm. battery project Lake Onslow's got to be worked through as well. So it's it's a very complicated equation. But certainly it makes sense to have more distributed generation, not just for the gentailers, but also for the line companies too. They don't have to upgrade not- their lines. And Professor, I was going to ask you too, do you think this kind of policy, what I like about it in a sense is that it's not ideologically based. It could basically encourage either parties that that are dominating and the two larger parties could easily adopt elements of this. But but getting, getting to this, do you feel that... Um, it is going to be an answer too to those policy settings relating to the year when we're expected to have maximum renewable energy goals met. Do you think this kind of policy gets us back on target for that? Yeah, well, we're working towards what the so-called 100% renewable electricity target, and and we're on track for that, whether we actually get to 100% or only want to go to 98%, but this would be a component of that for sure. And digital technology, Victoria, comes into it as well because you have to manage and control the different systems. You could have a community that's got peer-to-peer sales, and so somebody's generating and somebody's using the power because other people are out of the house at the time. So there's all of this... uh, clever stuff that's got to go into it as well in the longer term. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Ralph, always a pleasure to have you on. Kia ora. Uh, Thanks for your time. That's uh, Ralph Sims there. He's a professor of sustainable energy at Massa. He swears by it. And you heard Victoria there saying, uh, gosh, it's uh, cut her uh, power bills. Um, I'd like to hear more actually from the listeners on that. Do you have solar power? And is is it actually worth putting in? Because, you know, a bit of an upfront cost, isn't it? You can email me, thepanel at rnz.co.com. But I'm very excited to talk about this because we had a listener um, message uh, us and uh, asked about agapanthers, those bright, beautiful flowers, on one hand, extraordinary looking, on the other hand, just everywhere. I mean, everywhere. How do you clear them out, said this listener, and actually, is it possible? And, um, well, uh, a very special person uh, got in touch with us, uh, uh, Iona, is the biosecurity specialist pest plants at Wellington City Council. Is with us now. Kia ora. Good to have you here. Kia ora, Wallace. Okay. What's the real deal? I have heard they are virtually indestructible. Well, I have managed to get rid of a patch in my garden, which is always quite exciting. Um, when the listener asked for this question, I went straight to the Weed Busters website, yeah. which is a wonderful website. It gives you information about that. Um, yeah, so it is possible. Um, it might take a digger in your garden if, if you've got that much infestation. But on, in uh, small areas, you can definitely get rid of it. Yeah, okay, so that is a yes. You can actually get rid of it. And, Victoria, I think that you know a little bit about this yourself. Just a little bit. I grew up in a rural property where we had a 750-metre-long tree-lined driveway, which was also lined both sides with agapanthers. And the four of us kids, uh, one of our jobs was to keep the agapanthers (laughs) from hitting the cars as you drove up and down the drive. So I feel I'm a world-leading expert in um, reducing and removing agapanthers, and they are insidious. They 
the fact that they are classified as a weed um, by councils and you're not allowed to sell the full-grown ones, right. I think is a good move forward. But my advice to listeners on how you get rid of them, you wait till after it's rained because they need to be kind of moist to help move them because when they're dry, they're really, really hard as rock. Great tip. And then, yeah. And then they grow, their roots grow down through themselves. So they kind of layer upon themselves. So, well, you've got to start tackling from the top and use a grubber or some really heavy spade or something. And you just whack them out the top layer and then go down and down and down through that that vertical piece that you're trying to cut out. It's the best way that I ever found. Sounds like tough work, Alona. It's hard work. It is hard work. There's a couple of things. It's the white kind of meaty um, root or rhizome that you you really need to worry about. Um, And um, as your panellist said, you definitely need to dig all the way down. Um, One of the things that I've really enjoyed doing in the patches that I am not able to remove at this stage is to remove the seed heads before they open. So oh. I often do it when the, when the flowers are looking a bit past their best, I'll whip off the seed heads, pull off all of the individual flowers and then put those in my rubbish bag um, and get rid of them so at least they're not reproducing. Good grief, because they were a thing, weren't they, Alona? Before we knew about the destructive potential of them in the environment, they, in the 60s, agapanthers were the thing to grow. Well, the problem with most of our weeds is that they are all garden escapees. Um, And, and, you know, if it grows well in your garden, it's likely to grow well in nature as well. So, yep, that's how most of our weeds have got into our um, wilderness areas in New Zealand. All right, nice. Thanks for clearing that up, uh, and I appreciate you getting in touch with Alona. Kia ora. That's Alona Keenan. Uh, so there you go. There's some specialist advice for you, uh, the biosecurity specialist at the Wellington City Council. I didn't come to you on that, Sal, and I don't know if you've got any uh, anything like the agapanther in I've, your in your garden in I'll, Hawke's Bay. I was listening and learning. <laughs> you know, Vic, that was great what you were saying. Like, I've got the stuff here, and I, we want it gone. You know, yeah, well, there's actually quite a bit of a uh, response on that. What do you do with agapanthers once you've dug them out? Can't burn them. Am using cut and paste to kill them, then dig out? Uh, Gay says, I love agapanthers. If you want to hold soil together, soil together, use them. They are not that intrusive, is Gay's uh, point of view. Anyway. Oh, they can be. Yeah. Yeah, they can be. They certainly can be. Another one, interesting one here too. I work for an EV company in Auckland, and we sell the battery packs from ten-year-old Nissan Leafs to provide the battery source for solar storage. Love being part oh. of the circular, sustainable economy. You are on the panel, uh, RNZ National. This afternoon we have Victoria McLennan and Sowen Manning and um, keep that feedback coming. We're going to close it off in 15 minutes time. Uh, we have a snap panel poll for you this afternoon uh, and I asked you uh, at the top of the show, do you support GST off fruit and veggies? Yes or no? Why or why not? Text me 2101 results at 